1: Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the third day of October 2021. I'd be remiss in not reminding everyone it is the 70th anniversary of Bobby Thompson's shot heard round the world uh, for the New York Giants to make it uh, to the World Series in 1951. And uh, that's today. Back in 1951. Just want to mention that tune leading into uh, the show tonight was Vangelis with the great Chariots of Fire theme. Wonderful movie. Couldn't you see me running down the beach like that, Brian? Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, our engineer, Brian Graves he's with us across the way. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Leading off, we'll talk to author Tony Castro, and we'll discuss his new book on Maris and Mail, Who says we don't talk Yankees on the show? Come on now. In the second half, we'll welcome in former New York Islander Dave Scatcherd. So just sit back, relax, get comfortable. Enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. Got some great memories coming up. Social media, we're out there on Facebook. You can find us and you can give us a like on that page. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Twitter is at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at BDonahueWGBB. And if you miss a show, don't you worry, because they're all out there on the website, and you can listen at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he's the author of Mickey Mantle, America's Prodigal Son. That, uh, the New York Times hailed that as the definitive biography of Mickey Mantle, as well as his book, Looking for Hemingway. That's about the great laureates' last hurrah in Spain. His new book is what we're going to talk about tonight. It's called Maris and Mantle, Two Yankees, Baseball, Immortality, and the Age of Camelot. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Tony Castro. Tony, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me on, Bill. No worries. It's great to have you aboard, Tony. Now, as always, I like to find out about the sports pedigree of my guests. Who were your teams and idols when you were a kid? New York Yankees. Gotcha. Very simply. There we go. Okay. Now, uh, how did you become a writer and what draw, drew you to baseball for so many of your books?
0: My old man played baseball. He played baseball in the old CCC camps, uh, you know, out of the Depression. He played baseball for uh, uh, in the military, and then he played uh, baseball down in the Mexican leagues uh, in the uh, uh, late 40s, early 50s. Uh-huh. And so it was difficult not to, especially when he had uh, posters of Joe DiMaggio and later uh, one of Mickey Mantle uh, hanging in in the hall, and then later they were taken into my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So it was almost by uh, was osmosis.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great answer, Tony, for sure. Now, I was thinking when I picked up the book, I'm going to ask Tony, why did you Bill Maris first ahead of Mantle?
0: I didn't, you know. Uh, writers, whether it's in Hollywood or whether it's books, it seems like writers are always the last person on the on the thing. There's a when I first came to Los Angeles, I, somebody was telling me this great joke about writers, about uh-huh. the, the dumb blonde who fell in love with the writer, thinking that would help her career. <laughs> and uh, that's where, <laughs> you yeah, uh, know. And so I say that as a way of answering your question there, which is that the title of the book was something that. Uh, the marketing people for publishers often have a great, uh, influence in handling, and this was one of those cases. Gotcha. Okay. Also, he was the one that broke the record. You know, he was the one that, that he, in 61, he, he, uh, won, you know, in that chariot's of fire, as it were. Right. Uh, in baseball. He's the guy
1: that came out ahead. He did. You're exactly right, Tony. I get you now. Now, uh, what the book does, folks, uh, I learned that a large part of the legend isn't quite accurate and tony brings out some other points it, it's informative and and a great read that uh... sort of reshapes some of the preconceived history we have uh... and a, a few new angles you bring out for us tony
0: well i, I hope i did i mm-hmm. uh, you know some of that is the Maris mental relationship which It's not so much that it's been misunderstood so much as it was misstated. I think uh, from the way it was written about there in uh, the late fifties and early uh, sixties, not unlike what happened with Maris and Mantle. I mean, uh, uh, Mantle and uh, DiMaggio in the early fifties.
1: Now, now, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed uh, about the book was learning about the old professor himself, Casey Stengel, who later managed the Mets. He wasn't the guy that everybody thinks he was, was he, Tony? (laughs) Well, he he was, in a
0: way. I mean, he was a a mad genius in his own right. Uh, He had been a a ball player. Uh, You know, his pedigree is... uh, uh, The achievements of Casey Stengel are not to be denied. The problem that Casey Stengel ran into was, like all of us, you know, age catches up, and Mm -hmm. there's no arbiter for that. And... Uh, 1960, that World Series, who wouldn't have pitched Whitey Ford three times if they'd had a chance there, and he was available. Whitey wanted to pitch that game. That was probably uh, the biggest uh, mental, uh, uh, how would you call it, uh, uh, strikeout okay. in that I could see in Casey Stengel. Uh Unless you're going to go back all the way to 1951 and the way he introduced Mandel to sports writers, he talked. He was the one who created this big myth about Mickey Mantle, this 19-year-old kid out of Oklahoma who barely stepped into the big city, and Casey proclaims him the next Ruth, the next Gehrig, the, the next DiMaggio.
1: Oh boy, who could yeah.
0: possibly stand up to that? And I think it was a wonder in 1951 that Mickey Mantle was able to. Uh, have the spring training that he did, and the early weeks that he did in 1951, the pressure just got to be too much for him. And and I think that whenever you do that, whether it's to a kid in high school or whether it's to a kid in, in college or whether it's to a, a, a young man in baseball or any sport, uh, you, you need to have your head examined.
1: <laughs> exactly. We're speaking with Tony Castro tonight about his new book, on Roger Maris and Mickey Mandel. What you do delve into, too, Tony, uh, what, what I enjoyed was the uh, the backstories of how Mandel and Maris ended up together on the Yankees in the first place.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Maris was someone who made a name for himself in his rookie season. That was... Uh You know, in in the uh, mid-1950s, the Cleveland Indians had built an organization that won the pennant in 1954, and they had a lot of talent. I mean, they had some great arms. They had new young arms. They had Herb School. They had uh, people like Rocky Colobito in the system. They had had, uh, Roger Maris in the system. Roger Maris in his rookie season got off to such a great start. Everybody was predicting that this would be the rookie of the year that year. He got hurt, and he was never the same, you know, the, according to the Marist side of the story. He, he was brought back too early, and too much was expected of him uh, uh, too early, and he was never the ball player he at in the middle and the end of the season that he had been in those early weeks, And but he had made a name for himself. Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle uh, took note of him uh, in their early meetings. Uh, I mean, the teams were playing each other, what, 22 times a season? back in that 154-game schedule of, uh, uh, you know, before expansion. And so they were aware of this guy, and after the disastrous 1959 season that the Yankees had had, where they uh, didn't come anywhere close to uh, really competing for the pennant, things like, uh, you know, Mantle. The, Mantle was doubting himself, and uh, uh, much has been said that Mickey even thought he was at the end of the line. He had such a bad season. He took a $7,000 pay cut in his paycheck. And it was during that winter that the Yankees finally made this deal with their wholly owned subsidiary in the American League, the Kansas City A's. They wound up getting Roger Maris uh, in a deal which no other team would have made, and certainly not the Indians, but the Indians had traded him to uh, effectively gotten rid of him to the Kansas City Athletics on the condition that he not go directly to the Yankees so it, it took uh, a season and a half or so for him to go to the Yankees but there he was and 1960 he gets off to this incredible start a better start in 1960 than he did in 1961 and he was MVP both of those years
1: yes he was now the scrutiny that these guys went through in 1961 Tony um, I wonder how it would have been handled by both by the club if uh, they had the social media and uh, everything that we have today.
0: Differently, hopefully. I mean, even in 1998, when uh, <clears throat> when Sammy Sosa and uh, Bart McGuire made their assault on uh, Maris's record, uh, it was handled differently. Mm-hmm. The access to the clubhouses was different. Uh, access Once in the clubhouses, it was limited in, as to uh, where riders could go. And you, those two players were protected. They were also protected in terms of uh, the demands that were placed on them by uh, television and by uh, uh, you know TV shows that were wanting a piece of Roger Maris and uh, Mickey Mantle back then. But in, in 1998, of course, it was McGuire and Sammy Sosa. So even at that time, it would have been different. Today, even more so.
1: Definitely, yeah. I mean, McGuire was sort of protected uh, from the media by the Cardinals back in 1998, and uh, Roger was never afforded that uh, protection.
0: No, some of those changes in the clubhouse and how the media was granted access took changes. I mean, part of it was, uh, sadly, when Women became sports writers, or more women started becoming sports writers. Some of that began to be changed i mean access was limited uh, the way players were uh, uh, presented to the media after the games was limited and it has changed uh, through con- you know through the players association and and uh, their negotiations over the years
1: right now one of the criticisms of Roger Maris. Uh, it's going to sound familiar to the fans listening, uh, today, the younger fans. It's the uppercut swings in order to elevate the ball, uh, to put it bluntly and, and, uh, in current terms, launch angle, which I hate to discuss. But th- there was a, an incident or, or a time when the great Rogers Hornsby, who, who hit 424 one year, stated that a hitter like Maris has no right hitting 61 home runs, Tony.
0: Well, I think that was just, uh, uh, snobbery, pure and simple. Um, and, you know, you're talking about 1924. Uh, dear Lord, I mean, uh, that, that's what, that was 40 years before Roger Mathis. Uh, right. Yeah. For the, almost 40 years. Uh, a different type of baseball, a different type of approach to baseball. Uh, uh, Rogers Hornsby didn't have to play night games, didn't have to face, uh, uh, uh you know, p- pitchers coming out of the, uh, out of the bullpen like, uh, those guys did in the in 1961 and certainly nothing like what they do today. I mean, imagine Rogers Hornsby hitting, uh, playing today. I mean, I've heard people argue that he would be lucky to hit 250. I don't know, you know, uh, hitters are hitters and I'm sure somebody like Hornsby would find a way to, to be successful even in today's game, but it's, it's comparing eras. Uh, even something from 61 to 98 is difficult. Comparing them from, uh, the 1920s, uh, to, uh, 1961, uh, just unimaginable. So it, it's, a, it's unfair to do that. As far as the launch angle and whatever, in the book, I go into, to Manuel America, uh, Roger Maris and how, when he was a a, a, a not a rookie, uh, in the minors, the, the Indians and also the A's to some degree wanted him to change the way he hit because he had that, that uppercut swing. And, uh, you know, for years, and, and hitting coaches taught, you know, to, to cut down on the ball, uh, uh, to go, you know, hit in the gaps and whatever. Roger wouldn't do that. So you can make the argument that Roger Maris in the late 50s and into the 60s and the height of his career was the uh, poster boy for the home run hitting techniques that batters used in Major League Baseball use today?
1: Great point, Tony. Exactly. That, that's what we're, we're saying about. There was launch angle in '61, but. Nobody really talked about it as such. Now, we're talking to Tony Castro about his great new book about Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. What was the greatest thing you learned about Mantle and Maris in, in your research, Tony?
0: Uh, you know, about their friendship? I think it was uh, just that. I, I think I had known Mantle uh, personally in the, in the 70s and then Lupin in the 80s. And. The amount of admiration that he had for Roger Maris uh, that he expressed uh, in conversations we had, and then things that I was uh, later read about and people told me about, was just incredible. I mean, it was like uh, this was a guy that if Mickey Mantle had had his choice of being like someone, it would have been like Roger Maris. You know, by the time Mickey met met Maris, I think the the possibility of that influence was not very likely to happen. Um, Mickey's influences, you know, in the early 60s and mid-60s had taken their toll and had imprinted themselves upon his psyche. But I think that was the thing that I that I learned that Mantle uh, looked upon this guy as a guy who he would recommend somebody follow. And if you'll remember... When Mantle was dying in 1995, it, in one interview, it was this sad uh, uh, video of Mickey Mantle speaking out and saying, you know, kids, don't be like me. Right. Uh, I was supposed to be, you know, this, 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 and I'm nothing. Uh, I'm not the role model. And he doesn't mention that, but he, he could have.
1: Very well, very well, true, Tony. Now, the, did their upbringings have anything to do with, with the way things worked out in their relationship?
0: Not so much in the relationship. I think in the way that Maris was able to persevere. I think Maris had this us against the world mentality that he developed with his brother, uh, who was a year older, Moody, uh, when they were young, uh, growing up there in uh, uh, in North Dakota. Uh, they just thought the whole world was against them for any number of reasons. Some of it had to be their Eastern European uh, uh, immigrant uh, roots. Some of it had to be the fact that they were, you know, Roman Catholics. Uh, some of it had to do with just being who they were. They thought the world was against them, and Roger used this uh, this motivation, kind of like Tom Brady being the 199 the player taken in the sixth round of the, his draft year and how he has used that to motivate himself. Here with Roger Maris, he had this motivation, motivation going on within him of the world being against him. So it didn't take Yankee fans to prefer Mantle over him or his teammates preferring Mantle over him or you know fans across the United States in 1961 wishing that Mickey Mantle would break the record rather than Roger. Roger anticipated all of that. And, you know, some of the other stuff, you know, the thing that caused, say, his hair to start falling out and uh, gave him bits, I think that had to do with handling the media or his inability to handle the media. But the the making of Roger Maris, you can take all the way back to uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And that uh, braced this guy to be able to take on so much of this, um, the great outfielder for the Red Sox, uh, Mike uh, Shannon, uh, tells these wonderful stories about uh, Roger. He was one of Roger's teammates and probably his best friend on those uh, Cardinal teams of the uh, of that great uh, Cardinals stretch uh, in the late '60s. And it's his opinion that Mantle lived for putting it up the yankee fans you know what and that that was what drove him to that you know uh, those that final month yeah. uh, of september and into october one you know the, the anniversary for roger breaking the record just a couple of days ago mm-hmm.
1: true now th- their role in camelot tony we, we have that in the title where do mandoline Maris fit in the the ideology the the place so to speak that we call Camelot
0: well uh, you know that Camelot belongs to the uh, mythology surrounding uh, John F Kennedy and his presidency there in the early 1960s uh, as a newspaper man I, I never covered sports I was actually a, a political writer and in the mid 70s I I uh, was awarded this fellowship to Harvard to go there and let my head go mushy, I guess, or, or study something solid like Third World nation building. I think that's what I was supposed to be studying. Instead, I wound up uh, reading books I hadn't read and and hanging out at the Institute of Politics there on campus. And one weekend, there in the snow of uh, of New England, they had a seminar or a symposium on the age of Kennedy, the age of John F. Kennedy, the the, the years that he was president, and who among the speakers they had was Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the great historian and the Kennedy Homer, as it were. I mean, he he was as, as much a, a Kennedyite as anything else. Yes, and he's speaking, and at one point he says that, oh, he says something to the effect that. Uh, the early 1960s in America were possibly defined as much by Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle as they were by President Kennedy himself. And people were just flabbergasted by that. But Schlesinger, who was a big baseball fan, went on to defend this and explain that, look, by the end of 1963, sadly, we had lost John F. Kennedy. He'd been assassinated. Uh, but we still had Maris and and In fact, You know, he said, you know, if you look back on the early 1960s, 1961, America was following and embracing Maris and Mantle, much more so than they were John F. Kennedy. I mean, he had been elected president in 1960, but here in 61, he was overcome with the Cuban Missile, with the uh, Bay of Pigs crisis. Mm -hmm. That was a a huge embarrassment and a stain on his legacy. And then in 1962, he almost took the country to... The nuclear war against uh, the Soviet Union with the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis uh, that lasted, uh, uh, you know, uh, a tense, two weeks or so in October. Uh, Not to mention some of the other, you know, the the Kennedy years, as Professor Schlesinger was pointing out, um, were not as rosy as we were oftentimes led to believe it had been. Uh, a lot of that had been the whole, uh, what do you want to call it, the embellishment that went on. I mean, the idea that the Kennedys were playing uh, the theme to Camelot in the White House. All of these things were uh, as much about image building as anything else. So he's making this point that, you know, here you have Mantle and Maris uh, together in 1960, 1961. Uh, we were tuning in, it was his point that we were tuning in uh, in the evening to find out who had hit home runs or had both of them, not what has President Kennedy done today. Into 1962, they're still uh, having a great season and they lead the Yankees to another pennant and another world championship. 63, another pennant. Sadly, they met up with, uh, with Sandy Koufax in the World Series. In 64, another pennant that, you know, the two, uh and M M&M boys were responsible mm-hmm. for that. Unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, they they ha- they met up with the the great uh, Cardinals schemes of, of that era, and so he made this argument. I'm thinking uh, at that time. I remember you know jotting down these notes and all. Later, when I was looking on the first Kennedy that uh, uh, the first uh, mantle book that I did. I had a great deal of this and we had unfortunately it was just the book uh, manuscript was just too long and in the course of editing we've edited a lot of this out uh, uh, as we did Maris and and, and DiMaggio I mean Madeline DiMaggio we edited out uh, uh, Madeline uh, and Stengel Madeline and Barra Madeline and Martin we still hit the high points and all of the things that we come to know about them but as far as their Relationship? Uh, no. A lot of that had to be pulled out. an interesting story about that man, original manuscript. I wrote a manuscript of between 2,500 and 3,000 pages, typewritten oh. pages, which is 800,000 words. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to get a, a book published of 800,000 words length, uh, 8,000 uh, page length, unless it's about President Kennedy, maybe.
1: Good point. Uh, you really brought that home with the story about Arthur Schlesinger, Tony. That was a, a must have been a great uh, lecture to hear. And, and as a great Yankee fan, well, we have about uh, five minutes left, Tony. The 61 Yankees that we're talking about, where do they fit in with the Reggie Yankees of the 70s and then the dynasty in the 90s? Well, even the 27 Yankees, where where would you place that 61 Yankee ball club?
0: Oh, gosh. That's a tough one. I know. It's a tough one. I have put the 61 Yankees number one, the 27 Yankees number two, uh, the uh, uh, Jeter's Yankees three, and uh, Reggie's four.
1: Good. Yeah, the other one's
0: a big Bridget Jackson fan.
1: Good, good ranking. I want, I want to ask you also in in the looking at the history of the Yankees or, or just baseball in general. What person or what event uh, would you like to read a book about?
0: Ah, uh, um, they had this incredible clubhouse
1: man. Oh yeah, uh, for definitely years. Yep, I I know who you're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, and I would say uh, if somebody, if you could get a book deal, if somebody, you know, if you could interest somebody on that and get all the anecdotes on it, there's a lot of anecdotes about him. But uh, that would be one. The other would be, oh, Excuse God. The, Tony uh, and
1: I are talking about, of course, the great P who is who is a clubhouse man, uh, quote unquote, yeah, for, forever at Yankee him, Stadium. Yeah. yeah, and and he saw. Everything, and he was close to so many of these these great legends that uh, a book from Pete Sheehy would be amazing. And I I, I know you probably collect memorabilia, Tony. What what's your uh, most prized addition to your uh, collection?
0: I've got some rookie cards, uh, manual rookie cards. A couple of them in pretty good shape. Nice. And I, I would say that, as well as some uh, some sign uh, uh, memorabilia
1: and uh, the the mantle stuff is always good to have I have some of that Tony I have uh, believe it or not I have a ball signed by DiMaggio that he added Jolton to in the front he wasn't happy about it hey you know he wasn't (laughs)
0: that is unusual
1: (laughs) I was the first one online and I said could you please write Jolton Joe DiMaggio and he gave me a look he goes everybody better not start asking for this so he wrote it on mine and I got the heck out of there Tony well I've got on
0: the mantles you know I've got uh, different things on there that there for a while uh, it, was, it was questionable, you know, because he would sign them and he'd put, you know, uh, different things underneath his, his uh, different initials underneath his uh, name. And, uh, you know, they, they were all good. And uh, i was just very fortunate in that aspect. And so those are going toward, uh, uh, you know, our, uh, our grandson, I suppose, our grandson's uh I, hopefully, uh, there will be some others, grandchildren, I should say.
1: Um, but uh, And hopefully, they'll appreciate I, I the stuff I like went. we do, Tony. <laughs> well, you know, I think, uh,
0: you know, sadly, they don't. I mean, I, I had this yeah. great sports car that I was saving for my kids. Neither of them liked it. So uh, I, here during the pandemic, I sold it because it wasn't going to get driven much of it anymore. And it was like, my God, you know, everybody that came to look at it, it was like this thing is in in mint condition. Uh, You know, what what were you doing with it all these years I said, saving it for my kids? Neither of them wanted it.
1: Yeah. And uh, sadly, I think that's that's where our memorabilia is going to go, Tony. But, Tony, I tell you, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, Same way here, Bill.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for taking the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here back in in New York. The book, folks, is titled Marison Mantle, Two Yankees, Baseball Immortality, and the Age of Camelot. Thank you once again, Tony. All right, Bill. All the best. That's that's Tony Castro, folks. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we welcome in the former Islander, Dave Scatchard. Stay right where you are.
0: You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the
1: show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB from beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. I hope you had a great weekend. Yankee fans had a great weekend. Certainly great weather on the Long Island area that we enjoyed, uh early autumnal weather. Uh the Mets play it out and they're going home. Yankees play the Bosox in a uh, wild card game. And uh hopefully there'll be some changes with the Mets. The the curse of the Jets has has been lifted for one week. They won a game. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Being a Met and uh, Jet fan, folks, builds a lot of character. I uh, thank God the Islanders are coming back. So they'll that leads us right into our next guest as we keep the sports memories rolling along for you. This gentleman, he played for several NHL clubs, but we, of course, remember him most vividly with the New York Islanders. He has a new book out titled The Comeback, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell. Let's welcome to the show tonight Dave Scatcher. Dave, good evening. Hey, hey! What's shaking over there? Ah, we're 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 still vertical over here, so uh, things are good. <laughs> <laughs> now, you grew up in British Columbia, uh, Dave. Who were your sports heroes and and teams back then?
2: Yeah, I was born in Hinton, Alberta, uh, three hours outside Edmonton. So, obviously, all the Oilers, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Grant Pierre, all those guys were my heroes. And, uh, you know, it was kind of crazy how my career worked because I ended up getting to become friends and Gretz was my coach in Phoenix and Messier was my captain in Vancouver and Grant is a good buddy of mine. So all these guys I looked up to my whole life are really, really good friends of mine now. And it's, it's super cool to see this small town kid, you know, the coal mining dad, uh, somehow make it to the best league in the world and get to stay there for a little while. So that was really, really cool.
1: Now, uh, your dad used to help you get to the, to the local arenas or the, the, the rinks or the, or the ponds. Uh, and you, you had trouble with a bully in school, I read, which is not, not, uh, rare for, for kids that age. But, uh, you, you had some difficult times. Tell us about that, Dave.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think everybody has uh, bullies at times, but uh, I had a really, really bad one, and uh, this guy was relentless. He failed two or three grades, so he was so much bigger than everyone in the whole school. Yeah,
1: he was shaving when uh, when you were 10. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, pretty pretty much, and uh, the only way to get to and from school was through this back alley, and he he knew that, and his brothers knew that, and... uh, Sorry about that. I had an alarm here. I didn't want to miss the call. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, we had uh, we had history in the fact that he bullied me for so long. And then when I finally stood up to him, I actually somehow beat him in, like, the second or third fight that we had. And uh, I remember coming out of the school, and him, and he had seven brothers, believe it or not. Wow. And they were all standing there armed with with rocks ready to pelt me to death and i people laugh when i say they they have a funny name and you know but uh it was scary it was really really scary and i i was terrified to go to school um and you know i don't know if that impacted how i played as a sort of a, a little bit of a protector on the ice of, of i just hate bullies it's like one of the worst things possible and to have uh lived it and really been scared like wasn't a little bit i was really 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 scared so um yeah that that was just part of my childhood growing up
1: yeah not good and a lot of us grew up that way tony so uh we've lived that as well and uh this Mm -hmm. great book brings that out now you were selected 42nd overall in in the 1994 draft you spent your first year in the ahl with the crunch up in syracuse how'd you enjoy your time up in the salt city (laughs)
2: You know, my time in Syracuse was kind of short, and I can't remember if I, I might have put this in the book, but I remember I took my whole first paycheck and, uh, I bought a car with it. And me and Tyson Nash were roommates. Nash had a good career in the NHL, and we we're still great friends to this day. He's down here in Phoenix with me now. Um, but we, we were really cheap and we didn't make a lot of money, so we nickel, we ate at Olive Garden and, uh, you know, any of those. Sure. Free sticks, yeah. Or free breadsticks to the free salad. Just cause we, didn't, <laughs> we, were, we were still kids. I was 20 years old, you know. Sure. So um, it was my time was fine, but it was short. They found that I had hollow heels and they cut my my season short, I think, after like 28 games or 30 games or something like that. And they were going to bring me up to Vancouver and do the surgeries in Vancouver. And then I was going to go back to Syracuse and do rehab. And Vancouver had a hyperbaric chamber at the time, so they thought it'd be good if I just sat for like two or three hours a day in the hyperbaric chamber and let the, the my bones and my feet heal. And, uh, that was one of the worst times of my life. I lived wow. in a hotel. I couldn't walk. I crawled to the bathroom. I gave the bellman my room key and he would, uh, he would, uh, bring me my room service to my door, uh, cause he knew that I couldn't really walk and, uh, it was brutal because I didn't know if I'd ever play hockey again. And the funny part about the story is, um, you know, it's not funny. I had three other surgeries on those feet, still not knowing if I was ever going to play again. And with two weeks left to go in in, in the uh, in the summer, I was able to finally get a pair of skates on my feet. And uh, I made the NHL, that that training camp. So I just hit everybody I could. I fought everybody I could. I tried to get noticed. And, um, you know, somehow somebody liked me, and it. we had a bunch of superstars, but they needed a little bit of grit, and that's what I brought to the table. And, uh, you know, we had Messier and Burry and McGillney and Linden. We had a great team, um, but they, they just needed somebody with some grit. So, luckily, I filled that role. My first NHL game was in Japan, and the funny thing is I never went back to Syracuse to get my car. So oh, there's a car in Syracuse that still I probably I probably still own.
1: Yeah, it, it probably is. is. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but 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 I left it on the curb, and uh, I might have left the keys in it because I wanted my roommate to be able to borrow it or lend it out or whatever. So I have no idea what the what the law states about what I have to do with that car, but. Somebody must have it now. And it's Let's not hope
1: no, nobody so. from Motor Vehicle the city of Syracuse is listening to us tonight, Dave, that's, to, to that's, be able to right, track you right. down. <laughs> now yeah, it, for, sure. for those folks wondering, Syracuse, at that time, the Syracuse Crunch was an affiliate of the Vancouver Canucks. and uh, The Canucks soon traded you to the New York Islanders. Dave, how did you feel about going to in, uh, coming back to Long Island? Yeah, it was uh,
2: just to be totally transparent and honest Vancouver was a really first class organization. Our, our private plane was incredible. The food on the plane, the way they treated their players, the way the city of Vancouver took care of you. Like it was like being a rock star. And I was a third or fourth line player, but I got treated like I was like, you know, the greatest player in the world. It was crazy. And then when I got traded, I, I had asked for a trade, but I asked for it after Christmas. And, um, I went, like, two days before Christmas. So I ended up staying Christmas in New York, not knowing anybody. But the same thing was uh, with Kevin Weeks and Bill McColt, We got traded for Felix Potvin. But the funny part about that story is we, we, we leave Vancouver, and there's ten media cameras and people getting autographs. Like, it was like a big send-off because, like, people just love hockey so much. And when we landed it, JFK or LaGuardia, I can't remember which airport, we all threw our suits and ties on because we thought there was going to be like a big press group filming us when we came off the plane and interviewing us and asking us about the trade and stuff, like it was in Vancouver. And the truth was, I don't know if Milbury forgot we were coming, uh, but there was there was nobody there. There was nobody there to pick us up. There was no media, and we're with all our hockey gear. We packed all our belongings to live for the next five or six months in a couple bags and we're standing on the street corner and uh, trying to get a hold of somebody from the Islanders to like, tell us where to go. Like, we
1: nice. We not know what
2: to do. So we ended up renting a limousine, packing in Kevin Weeks' goalie pads, all our suits and all our bags, all our hockey equipment, all our sticks in the stretch limo, and it was so packed to the to the roof, we used the whole interior of the, the stretch limo and the trunk, and then we hadn't eaten all day because it was an all-day flight across Country and we end up uh, stopping at McDonald's and just pegging out on,
0: on the way yeah. there
2: on our way to the Long Island Marriott. So it was it was uh, scary to get traded there in the first place because Spano had just been put in jail as as owner of the team and we oh, didn't baby. have an owner. And Milbury called me to the office and said, "Hey, like." we can't trade for anybody, we can't do anything, so all I ask is you play hard, but he goes, if you want to, like, go have fun in the city and stuff after games, he's like, I'm totally cool with it this year only, and so that's kind of my welcome to (laughs) to Long Island.
1: Yeah, welcome to effing Long Island, right, from from Mike Milbury.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, so it was totally different from Vancouver, but it was probably one of the best things for my career that could have ever happened because i really got a chance to play um and we like i could prove myself as a player and not only could i hit and fight but i could score goals and i ended up having 21 goals i think a couple years in two or three years into my stint in, in long island and then i had a 27 goal year too so yeah
1: that, you had, you had, you had some me. great good. times here dave that's for sure you had some good seasons
2: uh i mean those guys are my best buds I mean, uh, Parrish and, uh, McCall, uh, we had Monkey and we had Brad this was my roommate. We had, uh, Weeksy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so many good dudes. Um, and we we're all single. So we were kind of like, it was like a big fraternity kind of where we practice hard. Then we go watch, movies, go to a movie and have dinner together. And then if we won, we go to the city and hang out and party and. Um, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And then we all kind of found our wives and our girlfriends within a year or two of each other, which was hilarious. It was like we all kind of matured as, as a group. It once one guy started to get
0: serious about yeah.
2: a girl, then another guy would find another one. And then we just, uh, you know, got to all get married and go to each other's weddings within a, a few years of each other. So I love those guys. Those are all my favorite hockey memories Is my Long Island crew. And, um, yeah, I miss it. I miss it a lot.
1: See, that's why you see that gang of women hanging outside the Coliseum, folks. That, that That's thats the cream of Long Island, waiting to marry a hockey player, because following them from the uh, Marriott to the Coliseum and the Coliseum back to the Marriott. Right, Dave?
2: Oh, I don't know about that. Those ones, those, those ones we stayed away from. Oh,
1: yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. The the, the groupie set with the, with the uh, Billy Smith jerseys on and stuff like that. Oh, that's great! Great times. So We're speaking with Dave Scatcher tonight on the program. Now, when you left the Islanders and you signed with the Bruins, how did that go over?
2: That went over like a fart in church. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> that. that, that That did not go well. I signed a four-year deal with the Bruins. I could have went anywhere. I could have got more money with the Rangers. I could have signed a five-year deal in Toronto. Nashville was really pressing trying to get me. They really wanted me. I would have been assistant captain on the Rangers and played on the second line. Adam Graves called me. Tom Rennie called me. And I don't know if it was like Islander-Ranger rivalry or if it was because they hadn't been in the playoffs for eight or nine years but there was just something that was, like, not wanting. Like, I just didn't want to go there. I wanted to win a cup. And yeah, you know? right. Boston was really aligning nicely with that. They, they just signed Glenn Murray. They just signed Joe Thornton. They signed Eddie Raycroft. All their core guys, they just gave good contracts to you. So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to go there, and I was thinking not four years. I was thinking I'd be there for the next ten years. If I'm going to go there and be part of a group that could win, who's more likely to win? And and Boston was really aligning,
1: uh-huh.
2: and actually, like after I got traded, I think they won a cup two or three years later. So my my plan was right, but uh, you know they had Patrice Bergeron, who's an up and coming youngster, who's a superstar now. Um, and Phoenix really needed a uh, they needed a centerman, and we Boston uh, needed a defenseman. So I just moved in across from Tom Brady's house on in Comav Ave uh, in Boston. I get a freaking phone call at 10.30 at night, and I got to play in San Jose the next day. Yeah. And uh, I go to the rink. I grab my gear. By the time I get back home, it's after midnight. I'm packing up all my stuff that I can handle. My wife's crying. just sucked. And uh, I was on a 5.30 flight to San Francisco. I land in San Francisco. I take a limo from San Francisco down to San Jose, and I'm getting mm-hmm. there. The guy's already off the ice. Wayne Gretzky's the coach. He's like, Sketch, come have lunch with me. So it's like, okay. Wayne, my idol. Like, yeah. <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm having a lunch with Wayne Gretzky. I'm like, this, this, and I love Phoenix. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be awesome. And, um, you know, I had a fight that night. I had a goal. Um, but I didn't really. The, the makeup of the team was a little different. We had a lot of guys who like to shoot the puck. I love to shoot the puck. We didn't have a lot of dishers or a lot of passers. Mm-hmm. And I and I think Wayne was uh, just trying to figure out what kind of player I was. If I was a fighter, if I was a uh, guy that just you know hit people, or if I if I was a goal scorer. And I it was weird. We'd never really. I couldn't find my groove here in, in Phoenix and, uh, I, I suffered a really bad concussion, my fourth concussion.
1: Not good, yeah. About,
2: uh, I don't know, two years in and I missed two years. I thought I might have to retire and I ended up going and working with the NHL Players Association, uh, after that. And I, and I took two years off of hockey. So to make it back, uh, after I found this doctor that could help me, I, I started back in the minors. I Nashville signed me, and then I ended up uh, playing another two years with National and St. Louis and up and down on their farm teams. That's kind of the whole career, right there. So
1: you did a great job encapsulating it for us, Dave. Yes, Dave Scatcherd with us tonight. Uh, we're honored to have him with us. We're talking about his new book, folks. It's called "The Comeback: My Journey Through Heaven and Hell." It really it chronicles Dave's life coming from that small town in Alberta that we spoke about. His dad was a coal miner uh, as we just went through his career in hockey, some trials and tribulations uh, in his post-playing days, which we'll get to, and his eventual uh, road back to where he is today. Now, I want to talk about the many injuries, Dave, and what you what <laughs> you went through. <laughs> yeah, how's that? Yeah. And uh, you had that, that near-death experience that I want to hear about.
2: Yeah, dude, it was crazy. Um, why don't I, I don't know, do you have the, do you have the injuries in front of you? Cause I had somebody text me today. And they're like, I knew, I knew you'd been through some stuff and I knew you were tough, but I didn't realize how many things happened to you during your career. So, yeah. I don't know if you have the book there, but I could try to like recite some of the injuries off the top of my head. Um, go ahead. Why don't talk- I, I'll just, I'll just do that. So, Uh, obviously the five concussions, that's, that's what ended my career. Um, I had broken bones in my knuckles. Uh, I had to have surgery in my left thumb after I broke my thumb. I broke my right forearm. I broke six ribs. I had 12 broken noses. I broke my orbital bone. I had MCL grade three tears on both my left knee and my right knee. I had four surgeries on my heels. I had two surgeries on my shoulders, um, had my teeth knocked out, uh, lots of broken bones in our, our feet from, from blocking shots. And actually, like, the crazy thing was we were able to play through most of those. I didn't really – I think I one year I missed a little bit of training camp with a broken foot. But um, for the most part, we would just play through it and, like, yeah. not talk about it. It's, well, the- it's nuts to think about now because when people break something, it's normal for them to – Miss work or get casts on and stuff like we didn't do any of that. We just like kept playing, and it's it's insane for me to think like my pain tolerance was so high that I could just turn it off and just keep going. You know, Um,
1: yeah. All all this is chronicled in the book, folks. By the way, you'll read about these uh, terrible accidents that Dave got into playing hockey, terrible injuries. And, by the way, on the cover of the book is a picture of Dave, and he is wearing a New York Islander jersey on the cover of his book, aren't you, Dave? I
0: fought fought for
2: that Islander picture. They, They had other pictures, and I said, I want to be in a Islander jersey. Uh, that was my favorite team and, uh, we need to find one with an Islander jersey. And obviously there's licensing rules so I can't have the full crest on or whatever. But you can tell it's an Islander jersey.
1: And, Put the fisherman um, on there, Dave. We'd love to see that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, People can go to Amazon and get the book. Right. Uh, it's on Amazon. And, um, it's been great. We made Amazon bestseller list our first, uh, few days actually. And, uh, we've still, I was on an airplane after doing an event for the Phoenix Coyotes here yesterday uh, in Texas, they're doing Hockeyville, actually right now tonight. And um, uh, we went and did a promotion for the NHL beforehand. And uh, it was funny because my phone would go off when people were buying books. So I was uh-huh. seeing them buying it while I was just sitting there signing autographs. So I'm like, wow, people are, like, really into it. So Nice. Um, yeah, it's an honor. And to be able to pack 45 years of your life into 270 pages is kind of – kind of tricky to do, so it took me forever to write write the thing, but we got it. We got bestseller status, and uh, now I'm just excited about the opportunities that are coming because of the book. I've, I've had, oh my goodness, I've had so many uh, media outlets reaching out. We've done, I don't know, like probably 20 podcasts in the last 30 days. And um, Yeah, I you know, thank you guys for, of, for, for
1: coming it. on the show. I, I appreciate it. I was dealing with Rosalie. She uh, did a nice job getting things together for us.
2: Yeah, well, I, I want to get with everyone. It's just trying to figure out what times work and how we get everybody. You know, even now, I was double booked. That's why, uh, you know, I want to make sure this is radio because I'm driving a car full of kids, and they're being such good kids. Ah, Steve, yeah, there want, we uh, go.
1: Somebody we crank up the ice window ice. on somebody's head. Come on. <laughs>
2: uh, I, 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 we I want to stop for ice cream.
1: <laughs>
2: so, uh Yeah, we we watched our friend uh, Saskia Weber, who used to live in New York and actually introduced me to my wife a long time ago. This is a crazy story, but she was a World Cup goalie when the women's team won the World Cup many, many years ago. And now she's working at UCLA and she flew into town. So I didn't realize that it was the same time or, like, you know, same day as the interviews. So I'm like, okay, if it's radio I can do it while I drive and still have the kids with me and watch watch an amazing game that went into overtime and uh UCLA just beat ASU women's soccer in overtime and it was really exci- it was my first game at ASU and it was super exciting I I have all the respect in the world for those girls they work their sure, butts off yeah. their all day long
1: Tell tell us yeah. a little bit about All-Star coaching Dave
2: Yeah man uh this business uh i when when i got done hockey i was really lost and i was in really bad shape with physically and mentally and uh the doctors at the Mayo clinic had done everything they could for me for three years and i didn't really have much improvement i had a little tiny bit of improvement but i was still kind of a mess and uh i had trouble with my memory i was on alzheimer's medicine i was on pain pills i was on sleeping pills they just kept plugging me full of all this medicine hoping they would take my headaches away and allow me to like function normally. And it kind of, it didn't work. And, uh, sadly they told me, you know, Dave, you're just going to be like this the rest of your life. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And I was not in a good place and I went into basic hiding. I the bright lights. I couldn't exercise. I couldn't be outside. I couldn't be in loud noises. So I just hide in my movie theater and feel sorry for myself and try to hope that a miracle would happen and nothing happened. And uh, I finally just would not accept their diagnosis from the best doctors in the world. I just said, I don't believe it, that I can't get better. There's got to be a way. And I started praying for miracles. And as you mentioned, I had the near-death experience. So I knew God was real, but I couldn't he was nowhere to be found i'm like why am i being punished what what, why is this so painful and uh years later it was revealed to me that the pain and the suffering that i was going through was actually preparing me to be able to help people that are in the same spot right now Mm -hmm. and that i needed to understand that intimately to be able to teach and help people out of it and that was was revealed to me in a message that God gave me that He was sorry that I had to suffer so deeply. But if I didn't, I would never have the empathy or compassion or love for people or try to help them out of suffering as much as I I do now. I really love what I do. My business has exploded. We helped over seventeen thousand people last year with with some of my challenges. I've got over two hundred clients that are. Uh, I've got. Like, it's amazing and. Um, life and business coaching, we really, really help people um, basically get a new lease on life. If they're going through transition or they're struggling or they're stuck, it's kind of my specialty is to get people moving again. And part of that is having them re-identify with the the champion that's within all of us. We've all had those special games or those special moments where we're at the top of our game And I believe that that's where we can, we can live. That shouldn't be like a one-off or like a fluke thing That, that I believe that that's how we were designed to be, to live in that really high energy, high vibrational state where, you know, you're in the slipstream. It's not a grind. It's not a struggle. I don't believe that's why we're here on this earth for it to be like swimming upstream the whole time. And when people can really find that sweet spot, it's like, it's like they, they they swim with the current instead of against it, and it's magical. Um, we've had multi, multi-million dollar wins for clients. Uh, a lot of our clients are doing six- and seven-figure, uh, like, year-over-year year improvements constantly. And people nice. are like, how are you getting these numbers? It's crazy. So, you know, we help all different walks of life and every type of business you can possibly imagine. And I actually think it makes me a better coach because I get to peek behind so many different lives of so many different people and so many different scenarios and businesses that I kind of can find the ingredients that really work well and just replicate them in other, other people and other businesses. So I don't care if somebody's a stay at home mom or somebody's trying to make another $10 million. I it, uh, it, the coaching is pretty similar for both of them to be, be honest. Yeah. And that's, that's about optimizing the human that, that you are and allowing you to do the things you love and to, not do the things that you don't love. So, I mean, it's it's a simple formula, but we're really on to something, and people are really resonating well with it. I think the book is just going to be a, a door opener to, to bigger and better things. I actually had a really big meeting with the university. I'm not going to say which one because it's nothing finalized yet, but they've got 80,000 students. Uh, they have faculty that they want us to, like, do a beta program with. So, I mean, shoot, if we start going on that
1: level
2: uh you know uh it's a different it's a, it's a different world i just had to hire three coaches wow. to help me coach because i can't handle it all it's, it's too much for one person so yeah man we're exploding it's doing, we're it's doing great lives.
1: yeah yeah well mm-hmm. I, I thank you dave for being with us uh hopefully maybe hey, they man. can set up a book signing at ubs uh in, next season come come and see us up at the new arena
2: I'm not joking, it's really one of my goals is to do an arena yeah. tour and, and go and tailgate and find books for people before games start and, uh, and uh, do that whole uh, thing. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter's telling me I forgot to drop one of the kids off at her house. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, we got a missing kid. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, Dave, I'll let you get back to the kids. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us. The book again, folks. Dave's book is titled The Comeback, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell. Dave Skatchett, thanks for being with us.
2: Hey, I'm I'm so uh, grateful that we got to do this interview. I wish everyone out Long Island all the best. I miss all of you. I can't wait to get back out there. I think the honors are going to do something for all the alumni. and We'll get out there and we'll we'll sign some autographs. We'll say hi to everyone and get
1: outstanding.
2: Yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing seeing everyone out there. Thanks
1: all right, great. Much. Thanks, Dave. That's Dave Scatcherd, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight. On Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Tony Castro and Dave Scatcherd, my engineer, Brian Graves, and of course, you for joining us. Matt and Peter up next. See you on the radio next Sunday, October 10th. We got Doug DeSince and El Cid, former Met Cid Fernandez. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of
0: WGBB.